Lord, we praise you. We give thanks to you because you are good. Your love for us is steady, steadfast, ongoing, never giving up, never ending, and we are truly grateful. There are not enough minutes in the day to fully encapsulate and explain and talk about all the good things that you have done for us. And Lord, we ask in this moment for you to remember us, despite us often, despite me often, forgetting about you. We are grateful that our spiritual amnesia and forgetting about you and your promises and your ways does not prevent you remembering us in those moments. Lord, we are weak. We are frail. We are in need of constant help and mercy and forgiveness. And Jesus, we ask for that healing balm of your grace to cleanse us today and ongoing. We take our sins. Would you help us take our sins to the cross to receive cleansing in this moment? And Holy Spirit, I pray that every word I would say today would be for you, from you, and for your glory alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. scripture for today. Praise the Lord. I'll give thanks to the Lord for his good, for steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Blessed are they who serve justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with the inheritance. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous work. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea. At the Red Sea, yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe, and remembered them from the power of the enemy, and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries; not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise, but they soon forgot his works. They didn't wait his for his counsel, but they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. When men in the camp were jealous about Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Byram. Fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eat grass. 
They forgot God, their Savior, had done great things in Egypt, wondrous work in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the great sea. Therefore he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith on his uh, promise. They murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. Then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. But Phinehas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed. That was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter. He spoke crossly with his lips. They did not destroy the people as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their son and daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the war in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations, so that who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered the covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied but by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say amen. Praise the Lord. Great job, Edgar, with that very short psalm. I appreciate you reading that, and you read it so well. Don't worry, the sermon will not be super long by any stretch. Actually, shorter than usual, if you can believe that. Yeah, there, miracles do happen. Uh, and our series is called Summer in the Psalms. We have been working through psalm by psalm from Psalm 90 to Psalm 106 today. You might be so happy that today is the final installment in this summer series, and Psalm 106 is the one for us. And to set things up for Psalm 106, I want to get a little personal. And I want to get personal by talking about my marriage. Don't you love it when the pastor talks about his marriage and how hard things were at uh, one particular time? And so that's what I'm going to get into. I don't know why I'm laughing. Uh, Basically, the first two or three years of my marriage with Tammy were kind of rough. Not kind of, actually quite rough. And part of it was because we were 24 years old and... Youth was in the mix there, but and we were the, the irony was very much attracted to each other, very much in love, and yet there was a fair bit of two worlds colliding. 
and we had not learned how to communicate well, we had not learned how to do just healthy, wise conflict management. And I look back to those early years of our marriage with a lot of shame, a lot of embarrassment, because words came out of my mouth. I would hear myself say words directed towards my wife uh, that I had not really uttered much at all previously. And, you know, and this is the person that I was married to and, and loved the most outside of Jesus, and I'm saying these words at her, and it surprised me. And then, in addition to those words, was the level of intense anger associated with them when we would fight. And uh, that surprised me as well. And, and the long and the short of it, uh, showing this kind of anger uh, to one another when we would argue like this, it proved in those moments, I'll just talk about myself, in those moments I was being emotionally unfaithful, emotionally unfaithful to Tammy. And you see, when she married me, she didn't sign up for the angry husband. Okay, it wasn't really in the contract. It really wasn't part of Ephesians 5. Ephesians chapter 5 really is the, the blueprint for a healthy, happy Christian marriage. And there's nothing about sinful, angry husbands in Ephesians chapter 5. So she, she didn't really sign up for this. And in those early years, I'm so grateful for Jesus. He used marriage to expose and shine a light on the sinful anger and the, the uh, really the immature emotional way that state that I was in, he, he shone a light on that, and that was exceedingly uh, helpful. Um, and, and so that was, that was really good. Um, and, but here's, so here's what happened. We fought a lot. I would express that kind of anger. There was words said that were terrible. What did Tammy do? Did Tammy walk out on me? Did she say, forget it, I'm out? What a way to start a marriage. I mean, you big jerk. I mean, there's some justice in that. Thankfully, she did not. She did not give up on me. I am so glad, and she forgave me in those early years. And my response, what do you think my response was? Gratitude. Gratitude. She didn't walk out. She hung in there with me. She didn't sign up for this, but she, she kept on going. She stayed in, in a relationship. And I'm grateful because now we've been married for almost 20 years, which is crazy for me to even think about. And now we also have children that are in the mix and we love so much and we have such a rich and wonderful family life by the grace of God and so that's only there because of her forgiving me. My point is when you do some, someone wrong, you hurt somebody and then you admit it and that person forgives you are you not filled with some gratitude? Like, what a relief. Thank you. Thank you for putting up with me. Thank you for showing me grace. Maybe you're amazed in that moment that they showed you grace, and that's a good response. That's a normal response, and, and so it is with God so much more. Psalm 106 is really all about this sort of response. Our sermon title is simply, Our Unfaithfulness Towards God, God's Forgiveness Towards Us in Response, and then Our Gratitude to that grace and to that forgiveness. And, and this is really, the big idea is, I hope that you walk away today just amazed at how patient God is with you and with me and with us all, how much he puts up with us, how forgiving he is towards us through his son Jesus. You know, even as Christians, we, we go through a daily struggle with sin, and yet he puts up with us. You know, that's amazing to me. And, and, and let me just speak more directly. I don't know where you're at. You know, I wonder, I know every Sunday someone is coming here 
probably mired in some level of sin in varying degrees. You might be mired in some level of sexual sin. You might be being unfaithful emotionally towards your spouse and no one's calling you on it. Maybe you're being unfaithful and sinful towards your parents or a boss or coworkers. Let me just say, maybe you're mired in sin today, and I'm saying to you, there is a way forward with Jesus. There is a way forward. There is healing, balm, medicine, if you will, spiritually, balm available for you in Christ, and he is ready to heal your sin-sick soul because of the gospel and what he's done for you. We'll look at this. All right, first thing in your notes is number one, there is an outline in your bulletin, thrilling to fill in those blanks. And the first thing on the outline, and this is all coming from Psalm 106, is this, we are unfaithful to God when we sin and forget about his steadfast love for us and all he's done for us. We are unfaithful to God when we sin, which is when we disobey God, we break commandments, we do something that he instructs us not to do, but we still do it. And why do we do that? Danny talked about this last Sunday. I don't don't know if Danny's in the room. But Danny preached last Sunday, did a great job. And he was speaking about something called spiritual amnesia. And that's when we forget about God. We forget about how, how good he is. We forget about his ways. We forget about his steady, ongoing, uh, never-ending, never-failing love for us. We forget about that. All right? When you and I sin against God, you know what that only proves? That proves that spiritual amnesia has kicked in. God is not prominent in our thoughts, in our minds, in our, in our hearts in those moments. By the way, we get chapter, ver, number one rather, from verses 6, 7, and 13. And this psalm, you need to know, is a historical psalm. Basically, it lists a number of historical stories that actually happened to the people of God over a period of time. And the period of time that we're mainly looking at is when God used his servant Moses. If you've seen the Ten Commandments, it's a film. It's also part of Scripture, uh, uh, Exodus chapter 20. It's all about God using Moses to rescue his people from the Hebrew nation out of slavery in Egypt in and around 1200 B.C., And Moses was his leader that God used to lead the charge out of there. And verses 6, 7, and 13 basically say this, essentially. We've sinned, we've done wicked things against God. Our generation, and then the generations, our forefathers before us, they sinned against God. And how did they sin against God? They forgot about God, forgot about his love, forgot about his goodness. And then despite God's people forgetting about God, Did their forgetfulness cancel out God remembering them? No, it did not. Us forgetting about God never cancels out God thinking about us, uh, remembering us. And that's how good God is. When when you forget about God, he never, ever forgets about you. Isn't that great? And here's, here's what happened. God proved that he did not forget about his people in that time of slavery in Egypt by sending his servant Moses to lead them out of that land, and he led them, all one million, imagine, one million people leaving an entire nation with all their stuff, with livestock as well, and leads them east towards the Red Sea. Now here's the problem. Moses leads his people out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, where they were slaves for 400 years, And Pharaoh changes his mind. He's like, what have I done? Why have I allowed these people to leave? I need those workers. I got stuff to build. 
All right, that's a major workforce, one million people. So he changes his mind. He sends his soldiers to run after God's people. And this is problematic because here are God's people. They're hearing the soldiers from Pharaoh's army coming to get them and bring them back again. They're freaking out. They're having a bird. They're not trusting God in that moment. So what does God do? In verses 8 to 12, if you have Psalm 106 in front of you, he saves them for whose sake? His own namesake. It's all about God's glory, you see. And God miraculously parts the Red Sea into two. And in the middle of those two walls of water is a dry path for God's people, all one million of them, plus livestock and all their stuff, to walk through and to run away and find a way of escape from Pharaoh's army. All right? Now, what happens? Pharaoh's army chases them right into the middle of the Red Sea onto that dry path. And I was thinking today as I was preparing, if I was one of Pharaoh's soldiers, and I'm, I'm going through this dry path in the middle of the Red Sea, and I'm seeing walls of water on either side, and I'm trying to get these people back to my land, I'm, I'm probably thinking, probably not a good idea. Pharaoh, you, you, might have, you should have thought about this a little more. Because <laughs> here I am in the middle of the Red Sea, chasing these people who are escaping. Anyhow, well, sure enough, what happens? God causes the waters to slam back and destroy all of Pharaoh's army. All right? And what is God's people's response in that moment? They see Pharaoh's army being destroyed. They see God rescuing them, taking them through the Red Sea. Their response is praise. It's gratitude. God, thank you for saving us. And in that moment, they believe in God. How could they not believe in God? They trust in God. All right? How could they not after seeing this epic level rescue such as this? But then it happens. Verse 13 It says that they soon forgot about God's saving ways and his work for them. You know, it only took three days after the parting of the Red Sea for them to start grumbling and complaining against God. Three days after that epic level rescue. But that's what we do as well. We fall into the same mindset as well. This would be like someone, let's imagine you're walking down the street on a Monday, tomorrow, if you will. You're walking down the street maybe on your way to work, and you're crossing the street, and then a bus is coming. You don't see the bus. The bus is not stopping. Has this ever happened to you? Maybe it has. The bus is not stopping. You walk out in front of the bus. A person behind you sees that this bus is coming for you and will kill you, and you don't see it. And so what they do is they grab you and they push you out from in front of that bus, and they save their life. This is Monday. You are grateful to them. You are thankful. You Thank you for saving my life. Now, Tuesday rolls around the next day. You happen to run into this person that saved your life on Monday, the day before. And this person who saved your life, your rescuer, smiles at you, making eye contact. But you look at them with a face that is cold as ice. You're like, who are you? I don't know you. I'm grumpy. It's too early. Get out of me. You know, get out of my way. I mean, can you imagine responding that way? But that's kind of what's happening here with God's people, and we fall into it as well. We forget about God's goodness to us and his saving ways, and it's so, so tragic. And before you say, I would never do this to God, I would never do this to other people, let alone God, I would say, yes, you would. Yes, you do. Yes, I do. We all do. We fall into this, this spiritual amnesia that kicks in. And that leads us now to point, sub-point little A in your notes. Here's what's going to happen. This is actually a very negative psalm in many ways. There's a lot of negative 
stories about how God's people blew it, and that's going to compose the, the majority of today's message. And this is, before you think, well, I don't want anything negative, I am saying this is actually a helpful negative. We can learn from their mistakes so that history does not repeat itself in our own lives, even though it often does, all right? So we're going to look at four key areas of unfaithfulness and sin committed by God's people in that day and age that we can learn from and not repeat the mistakes and the sins of history. And here's the first way in which they sinned and were unfaithful towards God in your notes. Little a is simply this, we are jealous of others. They committed jealousy and we also commit jealousy in our own lives towards other people. And what is jealousy? What is it to be jealous of someone? To be jealous of someone is when they have something you want something you desire, but you don't have access to that thing, and so therefore you sort of, I resent, I resent you for that, Scott. You have such a knowledge of history and, and a hobby that I, I wish I had. I'm, oh, I'm getting myself into trouble here, but you know, I, I'm so jealous of you, and I resent you, and I may not make that known, but I sort of hate you for that. And this is, can be a perceived rival. It can be someone who you perceive to be more beautiful or more talented or more intelligent than you or, or, or achieving, or maybe they achieved more than you did. And the example of jealousy in, in Psalm 106 that is given to us is verses 16 to 18. If you look at verses 16 to 18, the context, again, God's people, they're making their way. They've escaped by God's hand out of the land of Egypt. They're now on their way to God's promised land, but they're not quite there yet. You see, there's this great dry wilderness that they have to travel through between Egypt and between the promised land. And so they're going through day after day the drudgery of wandering through this dry wilderness altogether as God's people. And sure enough, as time goes on, when things aren't going particularly well and it's so routine, what happens? People start complaining. They start complaining. Dathan and Abiram, they are jealous of Moses and Aaron's leadership of God's people. You see, they want to be large and in charge. They want to be the one that people look to for leadership and for guidance and for inspiration. But problem is, they, they want to subvert sort of Moses and Aaron's leadership and they're pushing back on their leadership and they got people on their side and they're creating, they're stirring up a hornet's nest of divisiveness and, and jealousy is, is the motivation. They want to be those guys. And you know, the funny thing is, when it comes to leadership, especially in a church setting for God's people, leadership is not all that. Yes, there's wonderful moments. But Christian leadership, whether you're a pastor, an elder, deacon, deaconess, it's all about you serving others, you laying down your life for others. That's what leader, leadership in the home is as well for husbands, if they're doing it right. You lay down your life for your bride, like Jesus laid down his life for his bride, the church. So it's not about the glory. It's all about serving others, laying down your life, washing feet. That's the irony. So they, they don't know that. They, they, they think it's all about the glory but in reality, it's all about laying down your life for others. And so what does God do in response to Dathan and Abiram and their jealousy and their jealous ways? It's not pretty. Did you catch what Edgar was saying earlier about these guys? God takes very swift uh, and, and very harsh action against their jealousy and their divisiveness. And what happens? The earth opens up. Imagine that. Opens up and it swallows 
these guys and it swallows the people who are on their side. And then on top of that, a fire breaks out in the camp that God sent. And very often in the Old Testament, God's judgment was very direct and very prompt. Thankfully, God generally doesn't take his judgment out on us today that same way, especially because of what Christ has done. God's judgment has been placed on him instead of us. Thanks be to God for that. But back then, his judgment was very direct and very swift. And here's the point. God takes the sin of jealousy very seriously. Because you see, it wasn't so much a personal attack against Moses or Aaron. This was a personal attack on God himself. Because who put Aaron and Moses in leadership? God did. So they were personally attacking the hand and the plan of God. Not good. I don't know where you're at in terms of jealousy. Jealousy may be something you constantly struggle with. It may be something you have struggled with in the past. But it might be something you're dealing with today. And that's why when we look at God's word, we assume when we see something that comes out of the text, we assume somebody's got some jealousy going on in your life today. And, and I, I'm sure it's in me as well. I need to examine myself in this way. But there might be some jealousy, and maybe you're aware of it right now as we're talking about this. And it might, you might be jealous of your boss because you're saying, I can lead my office way better than he can or she can. That jerk. All right? Maybe you're jealous of a family member, of a spouse. Maybe it's a child or a parent. Maybe it's a supervisor. Maybe it's your pastor. Maybe it's an elder in the church, deacon or deaconess, and you're like, I can lead this church so much better. All right? And I'm just like, please do, you know? Please. Be my guest. All right? Help us out here. But, and so you, you find yourself subtly, as you're jealous, subtly mistreating this person, resenting them, and this bitterness is sort of rising within, and, 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 and you're treating them, them in a different way, and you're just sort of fantasizing about being in their place. Let me just say, if you have jealousy in your heart right now and you're aware of it, there's no upside to it. There's no upside at all. Not only does jealousy disrupt your current relationships, it disrupts your relationship with God, and that's not good. So, therefore, if there's jealousy in your life, would you confess it to God? Repent of it. Walk away from it. Turn from it. Take that sin of jealousy to the cross. Receive His grace and change with God's, uh, God's Holy Spirit's help. All right? Let's move on now. We're going to move on to the second key area of unfaithfulness and sin in the text. This is little b in your notes. Simply this. This is what we do. We exchange God for God replacements. Switcheroo. We exchange God for God replacements. God is on the throne of our hearts. Oh, wait a minute. We're going to push God off the throne now, and we're going to put something else in God's place as our main thing in our life, all right? We've talked about this whole idea of God replacements many times over the years at Mercy Hill. And here's what happens. We see this from verses 19 to 22 and 28 and 29. They talk about idolatry. When God's people back in the day, what they do is they make a golden idol um, in the form of a calf, okay? And they start worshiping this golden idol. And this is what the neighboring nations did. This is their form of religion back in the day. Now, why do God's people do this? They start worshiping this golden calf and doing all kinds of inappropriate, likely sexual type things together. Uh, they do this precisely when Moses 
is on the top of Mount Sinai communing with God, receiving God's law, God's Ten Commandments for God's people, which will actually help God's people thrive with their relationship with God. And this is all happening while he's up there. And they're worshiping this calf and doing all kinds of inappropriate things. And it's just really tragic timing. It's just so tragic. Um, It's just terrible. And what this does is it provokes God's anger against God's people again, and then he sends a plague that breaks out among them. Here's what you need to know. We talked about jealousy previously. There is a place for jealousy. You know where the place for jealousy is? It's with God. The Bible's very clear. God is a jealous God, and he's jealous for your attention. He wants to be your one and only divine person in your life that you live for, that you love, that you give your worship to. He is jealous for you and for your time and for your attention. And so he knows that's what's best for you. He knows that's what's best for me, that if God is on the throne of your heart, everything just works out better. It goes better for you. You're, you're a healthier person. That's what you're made for. It's what you're designed for. It's make God your, to love him with all, all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But when God gets pushed off of the throne of your heart, bad things start to happen. It's not what you were meant for. He didn't make you to worship something else and to to give your primary divine loyalty to. And and some God replacements that we often push, we push God off the seat of the throne of our hearts and we put other things in there. And these can be things like people, this can be a spouse, this can be a child, this can be a celebrity, this can be a thing, it can be your, your iPhone, it can be, you know, your smartphone, it can be entertainment, it can be Netflix, it can be shopping and money, power, whatever, all these things. Now, a lot of these things are good things. But one uh, church theologian, he talks about something called disordered loves. And what that means is, yes, things like entertainment, that can be a good thing. Things like food, children, obviously, these are wonderful things, are they not? Jobs. Do we not need a job? Do we not need a career? These are good things. But there's a certain order of loves that is healthiest for you and for your spiritual well-being. And God's got to be your first love, your first God, your only God. And then the other loves, spouse, children, job, church, family, and so on, are underneath. And so if God is not number one, that's problematic for your spiritual well-being, you see, and your spiritual health. And God knows that. He is jealous for you, and he doesn't want us to fall into replacing him with anyone or anything else. And so what is, what is, who is, what's trying to, what are you trying to replace God with in your life? Think about that for a second. Let's move on to a third area of unfaithfulness and sin that we see in the text is this, and this is the example from God's people. We don't trust in God's promises for us. We don't trust in God's promises for us, and we can fall into this. We get this from verses 24 to 27, where now God's people are on the cusp of entering into the promised land, the land that God has prepared for God's people to enter into, to to take possession of. And this is a good, beautiful, wonderful land. It's like the lower mainland. I often relate the lower mainland to being like the promised land. Am I right? I mean, have you been elsewhere in Canada? I mean, this doesn't get much better than this, right? We live in the promised land, and this is what God had prepared for God's people to enter into after 400 years of horrible slavery in Egypt. And this is a land filled with milk and with honey 
And God's design is he's going to take them into the land to conquer the occupying nations who are there now so that they can take over the farms that are there, they can take over the cities. It's basically just ready for them to enter into with God's help. And so as they're on the cusp of entering into this promised land, what do they do? They send in 12 spies to check out, to scout out this promised land. These spies come back to God's people and report to them, and two of them are like all about it. Like, this is a beautiful land. With God's help, we can take this land. But 10 out of the 12 say what? They say, yes, it's beautiful, but the caveat is, I have a big caveat here, these 10 spies say. The caveat is, these people are mean, they're ugly, I'm paraphrasing loosely, and they're, they're big. We cannot defeat these nations. This is a bad idea. Very, very bad idea, God. I don't know what you're thinking, God. So we need to edit your plan. We need to come up with our own plan. And this was what was going. They start murmuring against God. The text says they start despising. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine despising heaven? They're despising the promised land. And worst of all, it says they don't obey the voice of the Lord. They're saying, nope, God, you think you're all smart, you're all wise, you're all powerful. No, we're smarter, and we're not going in. Sorry, God, you need to edit your plan. How does the Lord respond to their lack of trust in him? You know what he does? He does something so horrific, but it's what was needed at the moment. He sends them back to the wilderness to wander, not for four days or four more weeks or four more months, but for 40 more years. So the entire generation that doubted God's promises, that chose not to trust in God, that chose to disobey God here, he basically says, I'm going to wait for that, your generation to, to die off, and then it's going to be your kids who are the ones who are going to take the promised land. I mean, this is just mind-blowingly horrific. And my point is, God has been so gracious to us. So here we are as God's people. We're in a later time. Jesus has come and he has earned salvation for us. He has been so gracious and merciful to us. And he has rescued us from slavery to sin. God's people were in slavery in Egypt. Well, in like manner, we were in slavery to sin and and, and death. And we couldn't break out of that. We needed a rescuer to come. And Jesus came 2,000 years ago. God sent him to live our perfect life for us in our place as our substitute God sent him to die on the cross for our sins, to absorb the wrath of God in our place. And God rose Jesus from the dead, raised him from the dead to defeat our worst enemies of Satan, sin, and death forevermore. And the Bible's very clear. There is a response demanded. If you want to get in on this grace and this promise and this new heavens and this new earth and the new promised land, he says... You've got to repent of your sins. You've got to turn away from sinful self-rule to now making Jesus your new king and boss, your number one. You've got to trust in what Christ has done for you with faith, and you need to be baptized. If you want to take that next step, let's have that conversation. But the new promised land, the better promised land is coming, you see. And it will be the new heavens and the new earth. This place transformed into a place that we can't even conceive of. And that's what he's promised to you, promised to, and given to any and every Christian, eternal life. But here's the issue. Here's what happens. This happens to me. We get so caught up with life. 
with all the challenges that we face, all the hardships that we endure, and all the probably maybe the chronic pain that we're undergoing. And all of these hardships tend to, and we can allow this to happen, it kind of squeezes out the hope that we have for heaven, and heaven's not in the, in the focus anymore because our focus is down here, maybe on self. And when we allow our struggles and our suffering, it clouds up our focus, gets in front of our eyes, and we can't see the promised land. There's no upside to not trusting God, to not trusting his promises, to not trusting that he's got your future. It's going to be okay. There's no upside to choosing to not trust in God. And so the key is, will you learn to trust in God no matter what you're facing a lot of you have no idea the suffering that's coming. This is, I'm such a positive person. But you have no idea the suffering that's probably coming your way, that will be coming your way in various forms, in varying degrees. I mean, I look at my own life. And I, when I was younger, I had no idea the suffering that was coming. And there's more coming. And so the key is you've got to make a choice now. Learn, I will trust you no matter what, God. I will trust you no matter what, God. No matter what I'm facing now or in the future, what pain I will endure, I will trust you no matter what. And in so doing, your faith is fortified. It is strengthened. It's like a muscle because you use, the more you use that muscle, the stronger it gets. Your spiritual spine is steeled, fortified, and your joy in God increases. And I'm just saying, turn away from anything in you today that is like, I don't know about trusting in God here. There's no upside to not trusting in him. He's got so much more planned for you. We have no idea what God has waiting for us. The place that he's preparing for you right now, it is coming. Will you trust him no matter what you're facing today? It is coming. Let's move on to the last and the final area of sin and unfaithfulness, okay? So this is... This is sort of the last of the the four key things here. And here's where we we sin against God as God's people. We adopt values and practices from the world that run counter to what God would have for us. This is a massive point. I mean, we are experiencing perhaps more cultural pressure than ever before as Christians to live a different way. Like, increasingly the world thinks we're absolutely nuts for living the way that we do. Right? Am I not right? So we could spend a lot of time on this, just this one point, but... Um, I can't do that. Very quickly, verses 35 to 39, here's what we see. This is a later snapshot of what is happening to God's people in and around that time. Moses has now died. Joshua is now in the place of leadership. God's people have now entered into the promised land. They are now living there. They are now in the process of conquering other nations and and taking on cities and and farms and, and everything's fantastic and going really well until... It's going really well until... As time goes on, little by little, it's very subtle, starts very small, but over and over and over, more and more, as time goes on, they are adopting the religious practices of the nations, the neighboring nations, and the nations that they conquered before them. And you know what they start doing again? They start worshiping these God replacements, these other idols, and these are not real gods, by the way, these are fake, false gods, counterfeit gods. And most horrifically, here's, here's what we don't know about... When God enforced his judgment upon those ancient peoples, they forget about how harsh and how horrible the people treated their own children. You know what they did to their own children? And this, this is what God's people were starting to adopt and do. 
They were sacrificing to the gods their own sons and their own daughters. They were either burning them in fires towards the gods as a form of worship, going, how messed up is that? Or slitting their throat. Like, it was just terrible stuff. Just terrible stuff that they were doing to their own children in the name of worshiping these other gods. And in so doing, they became spiritually unclean. I mean, the blood from their own children was falling onto the ground of the promised land that God gave them. I mean, it's just insane. But we might think, well, that would, I would never do that. We would never do that. That's so harsh. But we do it in different ways, even as Christians. I believe, I have seen this. I have seen, I don't know how many friends from Bible college, other Christian friends from over the years, they start just very subtly changing their views on certain things, changing their practices about certain things. And these are views and these are practices that are clearly not allowable for God's people, for our own good. I mean, he put in these, these guidelines, these principles, these commands for us to protect us from ourselves. And so they start watering things down. And I'm just asking you, have you noticed this? Have, I'll just ask you very bluntly here today, so I'm talking to you right now. Have your biblical values, what the Bible is clearly saying, have those been replaced or influenced by worldly values? Have your Jesus-inspired uh, practices from the Gospels, you want to learn how to live the way of Christ? Look at the Gospels. It's there. Have your Jesus-inspired practices from the Gospels that you once did, have they been replaced with worldly practices? What about your view of sexuality? Have you found your view of sexuality changing based on worldly pressure? Because, I mean, who believes this stuff anymore that the Bible says? I mean, come on. Does your view of work and career, does that come from Jesus or does it come from Scripture or from the world? Do you build, think about this, your weekly schedule. So you have a week upcoming. Many of you are, are schedule freaks like I am. Like Google, Google Calendar is my friend. I mean, I, I probably, maybe that's my God replacement. I don't know. But I mean, I got everything planned, probably too much so. But is your upcoming week or your upcoming month, is it scheduled? Is it planned? Is it sorted out according to God's design in Scripture? According to what God values, what Jesus values? Or according to what maybe you value? or according to what maybe the, what the world values. Look at your schedule. And I just beg you, this is su- such a serious point that I'm asking you today, asking you, if not today, sometime this week, would you take some time to prayerfully examine, Jesus, is there anything in my heart that is more worldly than Jesus-y? if you will. What is in me? What, what values have I subtly adopted? What practices have I subtly adopted? Like God's people subtly adopted back in the day. What areas do I need to change in my life and repent from, confess to you, and receive grace to be restored from? Take some time, please. Let's move on to a very hopeful point, which we will close with eventually. Uh, it's number two in your notes. Here's our hope. How do we receive help and hope over these areas of unfaithfulness and sin in our lives. It's Jesus, and that's number two. Our only hope is to receive the Lord's forgiveness through our intervener, and that's Jesus, and come to a place of heartfelt thanksgiving, worship, and right living towards God. Interestingly, Psalm 106 gives two examples of two different interveners. I don't even know if that's a word or not, but I'm using it. Two 
different interveners. The first intervener we see is in verse 23, and that intervener is a man by the name of Moses. And time and again, Moses had to intervene on behalf of God's people. And what Moses did was he stood in the breach between God's people over here and God's over here, and Moses is in between saying, God, please show grace and mercy to your people again. Turn away your wrath from God's people. And time and time again, God did just that based on Moses standing in the gap. Then later on, uh, what verse is that where we see a man by the name of Phineas? And some of you may be familiar with, uh, there's a Phineas and Ferb uh, cartoon. Anyone familiar with Phineas and Ferb? Yeah, a few of you. Okay, it's not that Phineas, but they may have got his name from this guy in Scripture. And very quickly, uh, Phineas was also someone who stood in the gap. He intervened for God's people, between God and, uh, and God's people, and he stood in the middle and said, Lord, please divert your wrath, divert your judgment from them, even though they deserve it. Give them grace, give them mercy. Here's what I'm saying. Jesus, what, what is he? Jesus is the ultimate intervener, the greatest intervener, because Jesus is God, God the Son. And like Moses and like Phineas, Jesus stood in the gap. Jesus was sent to save us and rescue us, rescue me, rescue you from your sins and your unfaithfulness, from my sins and my unfaithfulness towards God. And Jesus, he lived our life. He died our death on the cross. He absorbed God's judgment for our sins in our place. He rose again three days later, all to save and to rescue us and give us a better future. And I'm just saying... Let's come to Jesus today with, in our time of communion with heartfelt worship and gratitude and a desire to live rightly for his name's sake. And so with that, let us go to prayer. Lord, we don't deserve anything that you've given to us. We are so grateful for the gospel. We are so grateful for your patience. Thank you for not responding with unfaithfulness towards our unfaithfulness for not responding with forgetfulness towards our forgetfulness of you. Instead, you have responded so graciously and so mercifully towards us, most perfectly seen in your Son. And Jesus, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for all that you've done for us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us today identify areas in which we have been unfaithful to you, areas of needed change that would better honor you and bring better spiritual health and growth in our lives. Save us from ourselves. In Christ's name, amen.